Good evening. I uh, share my gratitude as well with you. We um, don't have a lot of spare time on our weeks, do we? And you carved out time to be here together this weekend, which is actually kind of amazing to me. So we're going to try to make good use of your time uh, before the Lord. Um, Take your Bibles and go to the book of Titus this evening. We're going to do a little book study here of sorts uh, together. Um, Thank you, Phil, for preparing the camp and your staff for this weekend. And thank you, Greg, and your team for doing such a wonderful job putting the booklet together and I'm sure hundreds of other things. And uh, I used to be a camp uh, program director for a short time and then an assistant director of senior high camp of a camp in middle Ohio. And uh, that's, that's a lot of hours, it's a lot of work. So we're super thankful for the efforts of these men. Um, not long ago, true story, there was a pastor in our community who um, just had really prayed all of his life that the Lord would just let him lead one person to Christ. And uh, God answered that prayer. Years into his ministry, he was able to lead a local politician to Christ. And um, they were in a car accident one day. And as you guys all know, as soon as you pass into glory, uh, you meet St. Peter at the pearly gates. And St. Peter was glad to welcome him home to heaven, and after a few embraces, and he said, I'd like to show you to your new homes. So they walked down the streets of gold, clear, you know, because pure gold is actually transparent. Clear streets of gold. They get to the pastor's home first, and it's a beautiful, beautiful white cottage, Nice picket fence around the cottage, and they go into the home, and uh, it's not palatial, but very comfortable. The biggest room in the house is a, is a study, of course. The pastor can sit there and learn all he wants to about Christ, and so have access to Jesus, too. So they left the pastor to his home and walked right next door, and right next door, um, God had been good enough to this pastor to put the only soul that he had led to Christ right next door to him. And they walked down the street a bit and came upon the politician's home, and it was this huge palace. And the politician was amazed that why is my home so much bigger and so much more palatial than the pastor's home? And uh, St. Peter said, well, If you hadn't noticed by now, there's tens of thousands of pastors here from all over the world uh, since the church began. And he goes, you're actually the first politician, and we just wanted to, (laughs) we wanted to make sure that you felt most welcome, because we're so glad you're here, and we hope there's more like you to come. Uh, Anyways, have 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 you ever been convinced in your life that God would have you lead at least one person to Christ in your lifetime? I don't need to raise the hands. Just ask yourself the question. Barna tells us with his group that studies churches across the country that 95% of American evangelicals have never won a soul to Christ that's a friend in their town. We've seen kids come to Christ in Sunday school, praise God, Vacation Bible schools, youth outreaches, praise God camps. 
Barna goes on to tell us that pastors are included in that 95%. They've led people to Christ through invitations after their sermons, praise God, right? They've led people to Christ following the opportunity to officiate a funeral, sometimes a wedding. 95% of American evangelicals have never won a personal friend to Christ in their own hometown. God's arm is not short that it cannot save. He's still building his church. But it's fascinating to see how merciful he's been to the church when even pastors like me have not longed and believed and prayed for that they would at least be able to lead one of their dear friends to Christ in town. In my neck of the woods, we were taught not to have friends in town. That's my neck of the woods. Maybe yours was similar. Uh, they would take, right, I can do all things to reverse out of context, right? They, they would take a text like, uh, friendship with the world is enmity with God. And then they would take texts like Proverbs chapter 1 and teach it like New Testament epistolary literature. And instead of Proverbs being these generally true truths about life, they would say, if you have an unsaved friend, what's going to happen? You're going to end up murdering somebody. You're going to shed blood. That's what the text says, right? And they were good men. I, I stand on their shoulders to this day, but these men were uh, biblical separatists, and I'm all for the doctrine of biblical separation, but not at the expense of other Bible doctrines, especially the doing of the Great Commission. Is it possible to be holy and to pursue Christ's likeness to maintain a holy lifestyle and still find our way to good, solid friendships in our neighborhoods and in our communities. Redemptive relationships. Someone that you pray for and have been praying for for some time and God gave you wisdom to develop that relationship for eternal purpose. It may take 5, 10, 15, 20 years, but maybe some of you have had that friend and you have a face and a name in your mind right now and, and God's allowed you to lead them to Christ and, and praise God for that. But apparently, the larger percent of Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, attending church members have had, not had that opportunity yet. I'll be honest with you, it wasn't until I was almost 40 years old. I grew up in a pastor's home. I was in full-time Christian ministry from the time I was 23. I had the opportunity to lead a lot of people to Christ. People that my people brought to me, all those ways that I had mentioned a few minutes ago. Many children to Christ in VBSs, many teens to Christ in our ultimate challenge youth outreach where hundreds come every year. But I had grown up all my life in my community and I didn't have any redemptive relationship because I was taught that if I spent too much time with them, they would corrupt me. So I didn't have much of a burden for them. Sadly enough, it wasn't until after I was married for quite a few years, I had a couple kids, 
continued to study scripture, look at the Bible-believing landscape across our country and across the world. It's nothing new under the sun. And I, and I realized that we basically were going through the motions of being busy people within our local churches, but we were not a healthy people. We were not a spiritually reproductive people. God convicted me and my family to get out into our community and start to build redemptive relationships. And my then eight-year-old son, Noah's baseball coach, is a husband and wife team, coaching team. Ron and I had the privilege of leading our first two friends to Christ in town. She grew up in a Christian home. She's a fourth-generation believer. I'm a fourth-generation believer. And it wasn't until we were in our late 30s when we saw our first friends come to Jesus as their Savior. You know, God's only given me eight more since then. Two of them are already home with Jesus. But I stand before you having been born again now for 49 years, having grown up in a pastor's home, being in full-time pastoral ministry for 35 years as a fourth-generation believer I praise God that he's given me a handful. But I look in my rearview mirror of my life and my heart just grieves. But you know what? It's never too late to do the right thing. Right? It's never too late to do the right thing. What could God do in the state of Iowa if every one of you took back to your home churches a burden and you shared that burden with everyone in your church of leading at least one person to Jesus in your town while you're a member of that church. So, ah, we're just a small church in rural Iowa. We only have 15 people coming. Wow, wouldn't it be a blessing if God doubled your size in 10 years? We grew 100% from 10 to 20 people or 15 to 30 people or 30 to 60 people. I know Jesus builds his church. This isn't a, even a sermon on church growth or numbers. Jesus builds his church. He doesn't need you to do it, but he chose us to. How humbling is that, right? What a great opportunity. And believe me, my friends, Jesus is, the, is, the, is an infinite divine strategic planner. Wherever he puts you, it's no mistake. You prayed about your house. He answered your, your prayer. You got an apartment, condo, or house. You said, praise God, he answered my prayer for a home. Yes, he did, but why? You prayed about a job. You went to school to get a job. Maybe you went to trade school to get a job. Maybe you went to neither, and you're still working your dream job. God gave you that job, yes, to put a roof over your head. If a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. We all know that from 2 Thessalonians 3. But why did he give you the job? You know you have to exercise to have good health. I chose this local gym so I can go and make sure that next time I see my cardiologist, he's happy with me. And I get a good checkup. That's great. Good. Bodily exercise does profit a little bit. Paul tells Timothy. But why are you exercising where you're exercising? Why do you shop where you shop? Why do you bank where you bank? Why do you play with who you play with in your sports? 
A lot of American Bible-believing Christians, very much like me, we live life very busy, but without a why, without an ultimate why. Why are we here anyway? I had some friends of mine who, um, for some reason, decided to go around to four different Christian colleges years ago and asked the faculty and staff and student body, just walked, drove and walked around campuses randomly unannounced and had a set of questions to ask the student body and the kids. What's your name? Where are you from? Why are you here? What are you studying? Well, I'm just in pre-med. Why are you in pre-med? Well, I'm trying to get into med school. Why do you want to go to med school? I want to become a doctor. Why do you want to become a doctor? Well, it's been a lifelong dream. My dad was a doctor. My grandpa was a doctor. And it's kind of like a family genera- multi-generational thing. Well, that's good. I'd really like to go back to my hometown and practice medicine in my hometown. Well, why do you want to do that? Well, my family's there and the church I grew up in there. Well, that's good. Well, why do you want to be around your family? And why do you want to go back to your hometown church? Well, it's a Bible teaching church. They, they, they're faithful to God's word. You know, they got a good testimony in the community. And, and, and I just like to be there and buy my home and build my family. And, and why do you want to buy a home, and why do you want to build your family, and, and why, why do you want to do all these things? Well, God calls all these things good, and he's the giver of every good gift. Yes, he is, James 1.17 tells us, but why? Four groups of people, four Christian schools, faculty, staff, and students, they didn't find one that gave them an eternal why as to what they were doing. I didn't make that up. It's information that was given to me. Somewhere along the way, we may have lost our why for why we're even here and breathing tonight. We, 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 we lost the focus of living for the very why Jesus came to earth. He came not to be served, but to serve. And to do what? Give his life a ransom for many. Follow me, he told his disciples, and I will make you what? Fishers of men. I hope by the time we're done tomorrow, you may have had a little, little fire in your soul begin to burn. That possibly you, your family, could each get on your knees once a day and to begin to beg God for the opportunity to allow you to live your eternal why right in your town, right in your city. You see, folks, that's just what healthy believers do, not busy believers. Everything that God declared, created healthy and maintains as healthy is healthy for divine purpose. Everything God created and in Christ recreated in us is created and recreated to reproduce after its own kind. Remember creation week? God created you. God recreated you in Christ. Healthy people 
that are born again, spiritually healthy people, they live to spiritually reproduce. If we're not reproducing, then we can say, maybe we're not spiritually healthy, even though we're really ecclesiastically busy. We all only have 168 hours in our week. That's it. There's a lot of biblical obligations we have that fill those 168 hours a week. Somewhere, we've got to carve out a little bit of time to beg God to use us for redemptive purposes. Give us the wisdom, give us the people. My friends, he's already given you your mission field right in your own Jerusalem. They're there. You're not there by accident. They're already there. God's waiting on you to let him use you to reach them. Maybe we'll find our way back to being spiritually healthy by the time we leave, a little bit of a burden, okay? See, that's what was happening in Titus. You say, that's a pastoral epistle. I know it's a pastoral epistle, one of three, right? Paul writes to Titus, he's pastoring at Crete. The church is a mess, he goes in there to clean it up. But if you read this book, you'll notice the phrase good works. You have a little outline in your notebook, I think, tonight. You'll notice the phrase good works, or good deeds, depending on your translation, that phrase is used more in the book of Titus in just three chapters than it's used in any other book in the New Testament. Yes, pastoral epistles are given to us to give us the structure, the infrastructure, the church, so that she knows how to function properly according to the glory of God. But if you study First and Second Timothy and Titus, and tonight we're just going to focus here, you'll even see... Paul teaching Timothy and Titus how to develop spiritual health inside the church so that the people in the church could be light outside of the church. You just trace good deeds. We're just going to do that tonight. We're going to see the, the nature of good deeds and we're going to see the nurturing value of those good deeds within the church People need to be connected with people in the church, going deeper in the word, pursuing Christ-likeness together, and we'll find out in this text that people that actually go deeper in the word together, they're maturing in Christ together, will have a greater burden for lost souls outside the church. It's just what healthy people do. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, we don't have a real gospel personally unless we've seen it change the way we live? Ever heard that? We don't have a gospel unless we have a gospel that changed the way we think, act, and live. Jesus changes everything about us when we're truly born again, doesn't he? Can I add another phrase that I haven't seen, I don't think ever, I was just going through this text and it just kind of came to mind? Can we really say that we have a genuine gospel if our gospel is not individually and corporately advancing through us in our local church? Can we really say we have a gospel? We can think about it, we can talk about it, we can write about it, we can read about it, we can podcast about it, we can preach about it. 
We can know the content of the gospel and all of its layers. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, we can recite it. We know the Romans road. We've got it. We've got it. But it's not advancing in our communities, my friends. But we have VBS, yes. We have this, we have that. Well, we all found out in COVID that someone can tell us we're not allowed to have those things. Is the gospel paralyzed in crisis? Not for healthy people. You see, spiritually healthy people already have a lot of redemptive relationships in town. That when crisis comes, those yet to be saved people know who to go to to find hope. The rest of the church that's just busy really doesn't have much to do but take care of itself until lockdowns are lifted. But disciple-making people, uh uh-uh. Jesus continues to build his church. So healthy within means that we will have a gospel that's advancing without. And can I say this? We have not because we what? We ask not. I mean, with Salvation for us, saving lost people, we can't do it. That's impossible for us. But it's possible with God. Can we just assume that if we pray that God's going to give us a burden for at least one? And can we assume that God's going to give us a way forward with that one? Can't tell you the timing. Jesus hasn't returned in the clouds yet and there's Certainly great and wonderful opportunity he has for you and maybe for some of you that are younger than 40, you won't have to wait as long as I did to get the picture. What is the nature of good works here in the book of Titus? The nature of good works. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for what? There it is, good deeds, one of... A handful of times. Look with me down into chapter 3 now. We investigate, begin to unpack here what the nature, where is the ability for us to do good works founded? Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. To malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of our God, of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, 
we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in what? Good deeds. We just read two small passages briefly. I want to notice the activity of our Lord in these verses in relationship to our salvation. The greatest deed ever performed, the greatest good work ever performed was by God in Christ through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, taking us from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive at the moment of our conversion. The nature of our hearts, our sinful condition is clearly described in these verses. Remember Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship. We are whose workmanship? We are his, and we are created unto what? Good deeds, it's right there, right? A few verses before realizing the truth of verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2, we see that it took the quickening of God to bring us from death to life. In Titus 2, we see the grace of God appearing in the person of Christ and doing some heart-changing and life-changing things in chapter 3. Our triune God is fully initiating the good work of saving faith. There's washing, renewing, pouring, transforming, and enriching as the heirs according to the hope of eternal life being brought upon us from heaven, from the Lord. God is doing all the heavy lifting in bringing us to Christ. Amen? He had to, because we were dead. It took God's all-powerful spirit to resurrect and renew our dead souls. You remember John 11? How dead was Lazarus? Like dead, dead, like four days dead, like he smelled dead. Mary, Martha, all the friends and all the Jews gathered around. Couldn't do anything to call him forth. But Jesus just with a spoken word. That recreative divine word. Lazarus come forth. He reminds the crowd and us that he is the life giver to whom he who is dead, whether it be a soul or a body. God is the only omnipotent one who speaks life into the dead soul or body, and then they live in his power. God is the only omnipotent one who can do this. So, when we review the language of Titus 2, 11 to 14, chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, it's God's power that saves by grace and gives us a living faith. And since it's God's grace that does this, it's God's grace and his good work within our souls that sustains the ability for every good work to be done by every believer. Are you with me? That's why it's so fundamentally necessary for us to start with the nature where are the, our, where's our ability to do these good works founded? Since God has saved us, God has enabled us, and he will sustain us. Because really, if you think about it, 
They're good deeds that you, you perform, but they're actually in his ability. All right? So what about nurturing these good deeds? All right? Let's, let's, let's go through the second point. How does the church together, this is you and me, when we gather together for worship, for fellowship, how in the world do we find in a pastoral epistle the church nurturing each other, strengthening each other, going deeper in the word and, and growing towards Christ-likeness in our progressive sanctification? Well, the first group here that's challenged to lead in this effort of nurturing the church in good deeds are, are the elders, right? That was the first act or first good deed Paul asked Titus to do in chapter 1. For this reason, verse 5, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And then he goes through these really neat, helpful qualifications. What kind of men should be the pastor teachers of our local churches? In chapter 2, there's another group. In our church, we call them the Maturity Matters group. We call them the M&Ms, right? One of the, one of the people in my town that we're trying to, we have been building a redemptive relationship for over 10 years now. Greg Lowry is his name. He's our local public high school's assistant athletic director and math statistics teacher and so forth. We were watching our daughters play soccer together one night. And uh, some people from our church came over and sat down, and I introduced them. I said, these folks are from our M&M's group. And his wife's in medicine, and, and she began to chuckle and laugh. And I was like, oh, myself, I'm so sorry. Did I, did I say something embarrassing? She said, no, 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 no. I said, well, M&M's to us is maturity matters. I mean, those over 60, three score and more in our church, they really need to be leading Right, this disciple-making way for the younger to learn from them. And she goes, I'm just in medicine. And she said, uh, every Monday morning we have a staff meeting. It's called our M&M's meeting. And I said, oh, really? That's fascinating. She goes, yeah, it's our morbidity and mortality meeting. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, my word. I was like, how many other people in my church know medicine? And they've been knowing this all along, and they've been putting up with me naming this group Maturity Matters. Nonetheless, this group is vitally important to the church, isn't it? Wise men lead young men. You see that in verse 2? Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, and in love, and in, per and, and in, and in perseverance. They're to model for younger men, we'll see in verse 6. Wise women model graceful good works among the younger women. In verses 3 through 5. Older women likewise are to be reverent of their behavior, not malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God would not be blasphemed. On your own time, you might go through verses 3 through 8 and underline the words to be, T-O-B-E. I believe some four times as the older men and older women mentor and model what Christ-like living is in the church as they go deeper in their understanding of the Word and the Lord Jesus Christ together. It leads to activity. 
It's not just learning, it's also doing. This is, this is a lifestyle of learning and, and, and catching. It's caught and taught. Look at verse 6. Likewise, urge the young men to be. Activate it. Sensible. Verse 7. In all things, show yourself to be an example of what? Good deeds. The grammar here assumes that it's good deeds being caught and taught from the older to the younger, and now the younger are going to take it in what? The Greek word here is tupas. It means to literally leave your mark, indelibly leave your mark, leave a lasting impression. So we must ask ourselves the question, since the older are modeling for the younger and the younger are to be the tupas, who are they to be examples to? There really is, if you go back to chapter 1, a four-generation spiritual reproduction going on in the church of Crete. If you go over to Paul's other epistle to Timothy, the second letter, 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul exhorts Timothy, take the faithful things that I've given to you and commit those to faithful men so that they could do likewise. Four generations in four verses. Jesus builds his church by people inside the church shepherding one another, going deeper in the word together, and growing in holiness. Be holy for I am holy. Not in worldliness, in holiness. Somehow we've got to develop in our churches, ministry leaders here, a practical way where our people can shepherd each other in the word unto eternal purpose. We've got to take the very busy reality of our church and going through its natural ecclesiastical rhythms, and we've got to take a time to pump the brakes, get on our knees, and ask God, where did we go wrong, or what can we do better in relationship to this? We're 168 hours a week, faithful, busy, 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 doing all kinds of good things, but somewhere along the lines... Only those who were equipped to teach by God or only those who led Bible studies or pastor teachers, those people are the ones leading people in the Word and it's worked for a while. But 93% of our Bible-believing evangelical churches are in plateau and decline right now. 93% in America. 7% are growing. 5% of those churches or what we would call attractional model churches. I call it Field of Dreams theology. If you build it, they will come. My friends, if you give me a half a million dollars and a couple good ideas, it's easy to get people to come to church. If you build it, they will come. I was taught that in my undergrad. Give them pizza, give them games, have all-nighters, get them in, get them in, get them in and then preach the gospel. And it was all a bait and switch, and I didn't even know it. Pure motive, wrong method. Why? What did Jesus say in the Great Commission? Bring them into church and give them the gospel. That's what he said, didn't he? 
What do you say? The most powerful two-letter word in the English language in the Bible. What's that word? Go. The church is not a saving agency. It is a sending agency. And Jesus sends you and your wife and your children and your grandchildren. Jesus builds his church that way. We build the church the other way. But what happens when we bring them in, bring them in, bring them in? Do you think bringing the world into our church is going to make the world more like the church? Or do you think it's going to make the church more like the world? You do the math. 93% plateau and decline. 5% growing. There's only 2% of American Bible-leaving churches that Jesus is building in a disciple-making culture. People connected with people, row to row, seat to seat, teens with teens, college with teens, maturity matters with young people, connected as their pastors oversee them and train them and equip them to do the work of the ministry this way. Read Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, my dear friends. Again, pastor teachers are gifted to the church to equip the church to do the work of the ministry. And the work of the ministry in that text is not merely painting, sweeping, mowing, teaching, singing. All those things are wonderful, but that's not in that text. It's so that every person, every joint would be made equipped to grow somebody else up into a epinosis, a fuller understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And our older people say, I can't do that. I'm too old. I wasn't given the spiritual gift to teach. Well, you know what? I wasn't given the spiritual gift to give, so I'm going to stop giving. I don't have the spiritual gift of giving. Well, I don't have the spiritual gift of mercy, so I'm no longer going to be merciful. Like, who thinks like that? But when it comes to teaching and shepherding, I haven't gotten the gift of teaching, so I don't have to teach. Nuh-uh. I don't have the gift of pastor-teacher, so I don't have to shepherd anyone. Nuh-uh. Pastor-teachers would equip you how to do those things, even though you're not spiritually gifted to do so. Every person growing the other person underneath your pastor's oversight, growing them up into an epinosis of Jesus Christ, a fuller understanding of him. These generations that are right here in the book of Titus, good works, that language is attached to their activity, it's necessary. And further clarification in chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, Paul teaches us that the practical service of good works, even outside that maybe one-on-one or two-with-two or three-with-three, however, it's, it's no biblical math model to it. Jesus had 12 and one of them was rogue. However, it works out in your church. People need to start ministering to one another in the Word under your pastor's oversight. But there's practical good works going on here in chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. We already read it. Paul says, make every effort. He uses the word diligently. Our people must learn also to, to meet pressing needs, he goes on to say. All these things, why? Let's go back to that big three-letter question. Why? so that they will never be considered unfruitful in local church ministry. I encourage you with your pastors, study that phrase. So that they will never be unfruitful. Each soul, 
needs to be fruitful in local church ministry. If we, and the assumption is here, a very clear assumption from the text, that if we're fruitful in good works, if we're planting good seed and we're watering that seed and we're seeing that seed grow up into a healthy plant from person to person, there will be spiritual reproduction outside the church. There's a quantum difference between faithful and busy people than healthy people. I praise God for faithful, busy people. I was one as a pastor for several decades, to my shame. I preached busy. I lived busy. Our church grew because, listen, I was busy. I was taught to have the greatest work ethic, not in my church. I was taught that the pastor should have the greatest work ethic in my whole town. I was taught that it was a compromise of life and character to just work 40 or 50 hours a week. I've never had a 50-hour work week in my life since becoming a pastor. I modeled and I taught busy when the greatest reality in the world today is souls are dying and going to hell today in Menor, Ohio. But we looked great. We had a great-looking facility. We had a great staff. We had great programs. We were bringing them in. Some were getting saved by God's mercy. Praise God. But every five to seven years, we come to plateau and decline, plateau and decline, plateau and decline, and more decline than plateau. Until God just in his mercy allowed us to try to figure it out, and we're still trying to figure it out. Do you remember the old phrase, 20% of the people doing 80% of the work? That's how a lot of churches are defined. 20% of the busy people doing the biggest shoulder lifting, and then what happens to those 20%? They get burnt out. They may lose their marriage. In our church, deacons lost their children. That's on us. Because we taught busy was good, even at the expense of marriage and child. We never preached that, but we modeled it. We allowed it to happen because someone had to get the work done, right? Thank God for Al Smetana. There every night after work, Al, you need to go home. No, pastor, I'm here. You're here, I'm here. We're doing this. We're going to get this work done. Can't tell you the rest of the story. Don't know, I'd be embarrassed to. Not for him, but for me. But in a church that's equipping each other, because they're being equipped by their pastor teacher to go deeper in the word. These are people that are, that, are, that are fruitful in the work, not unfruitful. It took us 20 years to get there, but 98% of the membership at Grace Church of Menor is serving at least in one area faithfully. No burnout. And 85% of our people are not just focused on sweeping, mowing, painting, raise, fundraising, teaching, singing. All the people that lead ushers, that, that lead sound booths, that, that lead child care, their greatest, their greatest goal now is our third point as we wrap up. Your notes say next things, but I would just say natural rhythms if you have a healthy church growing itself 
in the Word unto good works and they're nurturing each other, it will be natural for them to get a greater burden for lost people in the community because they're really, you see, you can't really learn the Word without learning Christ and you can't learn Christ without learning and living His burden. You see my point? They used to tell us in seminary, you have... Uh, only good orthodoxy when you have good orthopraxy. And that's not just living holy lives, that's living the why of Jesus Christ. Where do we see this? Well, if you go back up to chapter 2 and verse 10, urge employees to be subject to their bosses in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in what? In every regard, in every respect. Verse 9 and verse 10 is saturated with good deeds at work, not with eye services, men pleasers, having a good work ethic, healthy people within. They do shine outside the church only for divine eternal purpose. Our people spend an average of 2,450 hours a year in one place. It's their employment. Right there is an opportunity for all of us to get on our knees for our coworkers to come to know Christ. Many of our people have owned this. They've been a great example to me. The way they build redemptive relationships with their coworkers is is profound to me. We'll talk a little bit about that tomorrow. Those of you who are not pastor teachers, do you have any relationships for redemptive purposes with your workmates? You've had a good work ethic. You showed up early. You left late. But is your work ethic, is your disposition ever brought them to the point where they've asked you why you're different, and if they have, have you been able to explicate to them why you are different? Have you been able to explain it in the form of a person whose name is Jesus? Can I just ask you how many times have you used Jesus' name for eternal purpose among unsaved people in your community in the last year? What did Jesus say? If you are ashamed of my name before Men, when's the last time that you actively used the name of Jesus among your friends? Or do they just know you as a good worker, a good guy, someone who doesn't cuss, swear, do porn, go to the bars, smoke? Do they actually know why you don't do those things? And has your why ever been explained in the form of a person who has a name? It's a name above all names. You go down to chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, we've already read. Apparently, as we pray for people who have authority over us in our communities, we're to be developing good relationships with them. It says that. Verse 1, 2, 3, we're to be pursuing good deeds among these people we're praying for and submitting to. You know that one politician little joke at the front? 
I've got a politician in my community I've been trying to win to Christ. I've got one on the local level, one on the state level, and one on the federal level. None of them have come to know Christ yet. We continue to build those redemptive relationships together. They know we're praying for them unto that end. We've given the gospel to all of them. But how in the world do we get in the door to present Jesus good deeds? So what do we start doing? My wife and I just started taking chocolate baskets to our local city council at Christmas time. We have this little chocolatier. She actually makes chocolate baskets and puts confections in them, right? So the police department, fire department, local library, just thinking about places around your, your, your own home and your family gets a burden for these places. Your local school superintendent office, school principal's office, elementary, middle school, high school, We just take these little chocolate baskets and we build redemptive relationships with them. If we continue to give chocolate baskets and don't have a relationship, we're not going to be able to share Christ unless it be in a situational way. Oh, here's a chocolate basket and here's a tract. Merry Christmas to you. That's not what's being discussed here in the book of Titus, and that's not really the primary way that Jesus did evangelism. Could you imagine the woman at the well? Hi, my name's Jesus. Here's a little booklet about me. Let me help you draw your water and have a nice day. For decades, I salved my conscience that I was giving the gospel by handing out a tract. Nothing wrong with handing out a tract. I still do it. But my friends, that can never be the primary way in which we win souls. It wasn't Jesus's. We've got to find our way to good works in the community. So as we go deeper in the word, certainly we're going to grow closer in Christ's likeness, obeying that Petrine imperative in 1 Peter 1, 15 to 17, be holy for I am holy, We're becoming more and more convictional about our God-likeness and God was pretty convictional about the purpose of his own son, wasn't he? So I say we have no gospel unless our gospel is advancing personally and then corporately as a church. We really don't have the the best understanding of Christ in our Christology unless it has hands and feet of good works and a voice of truth among people that know we're going to be their friends in town whether they get saved or not. Are you with me? You've heard that phrase, you probably read it in books. If our churches disappeared out of our communities, would our community miss us? I think it's a pretty profound question. I would ask you, if you disappeared out of your community, would your neighborhood miss you? Would your neighbors miss you? Like, not like, oh, he was a nice guy. He got my mail once in a while. No, would they miss you? Would they like, would they like gutturally miss you? You have a bestie? That's what girls call them, I guess, right? You got a best friend? Like, best friend miss you. Hang on with me. Like, best friend miss you. Like, if you die, 
They fall on their knees and they mourn because of how much you love them and yet they never received your Jesus. They knew your character. They knew your good deeds. They knew your highest love in the world had a name and he's Jesus. But they knew you loved them. You fish with them. You golf with them. You go to the shooting range with them. You hunt with them. You go to ball games with them. You cook out with them. You watch ball games with them. And they know that you love them because you love Jesus. You love Jesus. And I call these natural rhythms or next things of the natural rhythms of life because right where we go every day, those natural rhythms of our life, those biblical obligations of our life, all of these souls that the Lord Jesus would have you reach, and it might just be one, they're right in the natural rhythms. You don't even have to go out into the highways and byways of your life. They're right there. Because God is your divine strategic planner. Put you there to reach at least one. Let's pray together. I'm not a big invitation guy. But I will tell you this. I would just ask you, as Pastor Greg comes, Maybe, just, maybe you already have this person, but maybe you're going to work on it this weekend. And maybe by the time we're done tomorrow and we leave together, that this little flicker will become a, a raging flame in your soul. Can you think of just one person, name and face, as we take just 15 seconds here to ask God for wisdom and how you can begin to develop a relationship through the doing of good works with that soul. Now that's the evangelistic application. But ministry leaders, those of you in your churches that are leading in ministry, would you also ask the Lord what he could do to give you wisdom on bringing your flock together, to studying the word together, to nurture themselves in the word, just like we saw in Titus tonight to truly know the word, to truly know the living logos of God, Jesus Christ himself, therefore knowing his burden. So twofold application, just 15 seconds. And praise God and thank you for listening. And then Pastor Greg can take it.